All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to be talking to Chris Cooper, who was the founder of Quote.com. Chris tells us a lot about the startups in the early online trading and financial spaces. But also, I know I say this all the time, Chris has one of the most interesting entrepreneurial careers that we've been able to discuss thus far. Over the course of a 30-year career, Chris has done basically everything. I know you're going to enjoy this fascinating conversation with Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper, thank you for coming on the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure, Brian. Uh, Chris, we like to get started with just a little bit of background. Um, and uh, in aid of that, uh, I, I see from from your um, your bio that... Your degrees were in um, applied physics and electrical engineering. So I'm curious to know, when, when you were setting off to go to school, what, what did you imagine your career was going to be? Um, when I set off to go to school, I, my undergraduate um, school was Caltech. And when I went there, I thought I was going to be uh, an aeronautical engineer. Once I got there, I got kind of seduced by the idea of being a theoretical physicist. Once you get to the to the school where Feynman and Kip Thorne and all the other famous physicists are, it uh, becomes a little bit attractive. So that was my idea uh, after I got there. It took about a year before I um, began to realize that people doing theoretical physicists were, the theoretical physics were not only really, really smart, but they also worked really, really hard. And I started to believe that maybe this wasn't the best thing for me. So at, in my freshman year, I'd gotten a job working in a physics lab, and I had started to do what I could for them in the lab, which was, in that case, designing and debugging and building digital circuits. And uh, I therefore kind of switched to doing... Uh, what I thought was kind of a, a, a combination of of the engineering and the physics, and I ended up in 
doing applied physics. So I uh, eventually graduated. It took me uh, quite a while. I actually flunked out three times. Wow. I kept letting it back in because uh, I stopped studying. I was doing great for the first year or two, actually. And at that point, I stopped studying, and, um, and you have to study to be able to get out. So uh, they finally they kept letting me back in, and they finally let me graduate, and I got out in five years. And the reason that I ultimately got a, another, a different degree in electrical engineering, I'll, I'll come to a little bit later. Um, what I did after getting out of Caltech with my physics degree was uh, move to Las Vegas, where I had a couple of friends who were uh, busy counting cards and trying to make a living playing blackjack. And I thought I would do the same thing. So I moved in and uh, took my $300 and thought I was going to be rich playing blackjack. Uh, it didn't last long. You can't live long, uh, live very well and uh, make a living uh, playing blackjack without a good bankroll. Or possibly, so, possibly even live long if you're caught, I guess. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was simply running out of money, just not having a bankroll. So I looked around for a job uh, and found a couple that were working on, uh, on trying to decode touchtone phones at the time, sort of an interactive voice response system. And they hired me, and I got myself a, a four-bit microprocessor development system from Intel and started uh, working on uh, the circuitry needed to do that until I found out that they really didn't have any money. Um, so I got myself a job at that point working for a company called EG&G in Las Vegas, which uh, does the nuclear testing, uh, testing of nuclear bombs out at the test site in Nevada at the time. I did that for about a year and a half, saved my money to the point where I could uh, gamble again. And uh, then quit the job, started gambling, and at the same time moved up to Salt Lake City with a couple of college buddies to go skiing for the winter. So I was sort of ski bum for the winter, and on the weekends I would drive down to Las Vegas and gamble. That worked out for, uh, for the rest of that season, but I knew that by that time that a couple of things. One, it wasn't really very much fun. Gambling was kind of boring after you get after you got good at it. And two, the um, the stock market was really the biggest casino in the world. So my idea was that I would go back to graduate school and learn what I needed to learn to be able to trade and beat the stock market. So I ended up uh, applying to grad school, and uh, there weren't very many schools that would accept me, having given my grade point average at uh, Caltech, but there were a few that liked my test scores, and UC Santa Barbara let me in and uh, let me study electrical engineering, in particular control systems, which is uh, sort of a mathematical uh, economics uh, and mathematical approach to system identification and controlling of, of systems of various sorts. Uh, I got out of there um, in a couple of years with a master's degree and went to work for uh, TRW in, in L.A. designing uh, satellite navigation systems. 
And so it, it, you you graduated with your second degree about 79, right? Just for the context of the, the time period. That's correct. Okay. And so um, uh, where, where did you uh, start working at? I was working at TRW. And that lasted for about a year. And uh, I had a little side business that I had started. I taught myself some chemistry and uh, decided that I could be in the uh, that I could be in the drug business. And so I started up a little drug manufacturing operation, illegal drug business. And uh, that was ask, started, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> illegal drug business. I did that for, uh, for a while until it became much better than my legit job at TRW. So and what, I quit that. What was the, yeah. what was the drugs? Was it meth at that point or? It was that and, uh, some, and some other, uh, like MDMA type of things mm-hmm. that I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that business was going well and did well for a couple of years until I got busted. Uh, I got busted and spent the next four years in prison. Um, and while I was in prison, I was able to uh, teach myself C, uh, programming language, and um, actually really get caught up to speed on some of the some of the programming stuff that I knew already up to a point but didn't really know that much about coding to be useful professionally but just, by the time I got just out of prison out, yeah. of, out of curiosity I I have to imagine that was some sort of a, a a prison program like some sort of educational program in prison to work with computers at that time there wasn't really the way it worked was I was actually, I got a job teaching in their vocational training. Um, so, I mean, every prisoner has to work. My job, given my qualifications, turned out to be teaching in their vocational training uh, for electronics, like teaching electronic technicians. And the side benefit was that they had a computer, a PC, and I was able to spend sort of my off hours programming on the PC, learning how to code, and incidentally writing programs for the prison administration to help them with some of the things they needed to do. So that's why it was kind of allowed. There was certainly no internet connection, no external connection at that time, but I had books. Um, I studied them and I practiced and I was able to build up my uh, programming potential at that point. So what year so, what, what year do you come out of prison? I come out in 86, mm-hmm. and I get a job uh, doing uh, C programming on a company that was, uh, was writing code for uh, ad agencies and TV stations and radio stations doing audience measurement, like, uh, like Nielsen does. I was able to do that for a while, and then, uh, then something caught up to me. It turns out that when you get busted, they go around and they take all your money. And uh, then they tell the IRS how much money you made. And the IRS says, okay, now you owe taxes and uh, penalties and interest and so on. So by the time I got out of prison, I had zero dollars and a couple million dollars in debt to the IRS. So the IRS finds out where I'm working and uh, garnishes my wages and says, now you have $300 a month you can live on. And that's a little difficult, even in the mid-80s in, uh, in Silicon Valley. So I had to quit my job 
And uh, that kind of boosted me into starting up my own company because at least if I wasn't paying myself a salary in my own company, they couldn't garnish that and I could build up some equity. And I started a company doing what I kind of oriented around what I always wanted to do, trading. I started a company selling stock market data and commodity data. And this was before internet. So it was uh, on floppy disk. I would sell large histories of data on floppy disk. And I had a dial-up system based on uh, a bulletin board system that people would call into and get daily updates for the data that they were looking for to trade. Where did you um, where did you acquire the data um, that you would put on this BBS? I licensed the data from uh, from a company called MJK, which was in uh, actually in San Jose. That was for the commodity data. For the stock data, I actually by the time I acquired that, I had enough money that I could buy the data from somebody who had accumulated it over years. And uh, there was also some tick by tick data which I bought from a gentleman named Eric Hunsader, who will come into our history a little bit later. Uh, he had a, a service that was supplying high-frequency sort of uh, data on an end-of-day basis. Um, so, so I accumulated it from that sources and then downloaded it or got it from the exchanges on a, on a real-time basis under license from the exchanges. And what, what was the name of the BBS? Uh, the company was called Technical Tools. So I started that in ninety, no, in eighty-seven, um, and four years later, I uh, was approached by one of my customers who was uh, a well-known commodity trader. Um, uh, he wanted to buy the company, and so I sold it to him. Uh, this was in ninety-one, and uh, he he bought the company, and uh, I went on to do other things. So I started a company in Sunnyvale at that time, which was uh, an indoor paintball arena. Oh, wow. This, this was a big warehouse, and we built a, a castle inside, and people would run around and shoot each other. So in 91, this was a, a great business, and it was a fad at the time. And we... Uh, had a lot of customers. They were lined up out the door, and it was great for a while. About six months later, pretty soon the the customers stopped coming. So in '92 and '93, uh, I kind of was sitting around this big warehouse with not much to do, and uh, I started spending time on the internet. Uh, it was dial-up, of course, at that time, and uh, there was. At the time, there was also AOL, and there was CompuServe, and there was Prodigy, but the Internet was growing fast, and um, yet you didn't have the same kinds of services that were on the net as you would have on CompuServe or, or AOL, which, such as something I was familiar with, stock quotes. And at the time, people were thinking that wasn't possible because the Internet wasn't a commercial, I mean, it wasn't possible to do a commercial business on the net, but I thought that that was inevitable and, uh, and that there were so many people on the net that there must be uh, a good business there doing what I already knew how to do, which was provide stock market data uh, and commodity data to people who were interested in it and wanted to get it using the net. 
So in 93, I uh, started Quote.com, and uh, that was the idea of the business, was to provide stock quotes and news and research uh, for people that were interested in that information only on the Internet. Uh, I assume you kind of start off as a one-man shop, like you you, uh, register the domain and and maybe uh, code the site yourself initially? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So I registered the – well, I started in, what, October of 93 – I bought a Sun workstation. I got a T1 line, which was about as fast as you could get in those days. I rented a, an office from some of my ex-employees from Technical Tools who had uh, started a, a stock market dial-up service similar to the one that we had because they'd been fired by the guy who bought my company. It turns out he fired everybody that all of my employees after uh, a short period of time were gone. Um, so these guys started up a competitor. Anyway, I rented a little bit of office space from them. And I proceeded to learn to program uh, in on a Unix operating system. At that point, I was only a PC programmer <clears throat> and not a Windows programmer either. I just knew how to program in C on MS-DOS. Right. So I had a lot to learn. Um, but I, I just worked at it. I just worked you know, day and night, um, trying to code everything up, uh, all by myself. And, um, we were able to, well, I was able to launch it in beta in May of 94, I think. And in, and then launch it publicly in June of 94. So it took me about six months or so to learn how to do it and, and code it up and, and put it together and launch it. Describe for me, um, what the product was like, what the site was like around the time of the launch. Is it just quotes or are you already adding things like news and research and and all that stuff you already knew how to do? So we had added all that. The idea was it would be quotes plus news plus research. And I had that idea from the beginning, but what it looked like was way, way different than what it ultimately looked like. At that point, there was really no World Wide Web, uh, and I thought that I would do – I thought I would do it around Telnet, which was basically like a bulletin board system interface. Uh, and people would, uh, would connect to me using Telnet, and there was also an FTP server, and a big part of what I was doing was email. So I built it around Telnet, FTP, and email, and just at the last minute, um, Mosaic started supporting images, and I realized that it was becoming pretty popular and was pretty cool. So I threw together a web server as well and started doing um, doing quotes and news and research uh, using Telnet, FTP, email, and web. And so the idea was, um, first of all, I didn't have any money left because I put everything that I had into into just the development and getting this running. So it had to pay for itself. Um, and the idea was to charge people for subscriptions. And we would give away some quotes and we would, you know, give away some news headlines and what we could do for free. But the idea was always to encourage people to sign up for subscriptions. And we had subscriptions starting at $10 a month, going all the way up to maybe $50 a month or so. 
and it would and there series of tier subscriptions that would let you um, get different amounts of information or different sources of information. And what I had done is I had licensed uh, information not only from the exchanges, but also from companies like uh, the Newswire services like PR Newswire and news services like Reuters uh, and a bunch of those that were all ticker symbol tagged so that if you entered your portfolio on on our service, it would keep that, and you could always get uh, news items and research that was appropriate to what you were interested in following uh, sent to you automatically. So you didn't even have to go to our site. It would send you an end-of-day update with the status of your portfolio, how much money you had made or lost that day, and any news items that uh, that applied to the items that were in your portfolio. And this was what I thought I could do in order to uh, get people to pay for it. The other source of information was, or I mean, the other source of revenue was to be site licenses. My role model was was Clarinet by uh, Brad Templeton. Right. Yeah, he had uh, he had done site licenses with ISPs in particular, like Netcom, uh, as a prime example, and I thought. You know, they would, and they would pay him maybe 25, 30, 35 cents a month per user, and the users would have access to any of the news items and the, the groups, the news groups that ran on his service, Clary.net. I thought I could do the same thing, and we had a little bit of, of success with that. Um, my first customer was uh, Pipeline, which was an ISP out of New York City run by James Glick, who later wrote a book on chaos, chaos theory. And, uh, but the, the site licenses didn't really seem to work that well. I think the problem was that all of the ISPs were growing so fast anyway that they didn't need to add in things like quotes um, and news and st- things like I had into their service because while people wanted it, People were signing up so fast that they couldn't keep up anyway. And what was the point of uh, of adding it in? So that was the that was the beginning of the service, and that's how we got started. And uh, just started gradually trying to accumulate revenue by accumulating subscribers month by month, and it kept growing. So you you were never able to do any tie ups with with the prodigies or the CompuServes of, of the world at that point. No, you know, they already had their right, right. services, right? They already had quotes and news and uh, were far bigger than I was. So at that point in my history, it was pretty difficult to to get anybody uh, to do any sort of a partnership with me. Um, I could get some of the uh, content providers to do it simply because the Internet was new to them and they wanted to experiment. And they wanted to explore. So, for example, Reuters would sign up for with me and would provide what I thought was a reasonable deal for our users um, just because they wanted to see what happened. And they would renegotiate a few years later if it got really popular, which, as it turned out, is what happened. But uh, in the meantime, we were able to provide a, a great service. I mean, the idea was generally to have a kind of a Bloomberg on your Internet terminal. Now, we were a long, long ways from that, but ultimately the that was the goal. 
Um, and in essence, it was try to provide the same kinds of things that people pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for a month to them on their web browser uh, when they only had to pay tens of dollars a month. So, so the key would be for you to achieve enough scale to get enough users to uh, uh, to, to make the, to make the money work, and and your hope is that as the web explodes, you'll be able to reach that scale. Yeah, I didn't, of course, know the web was going to explode. I thought, well, gee, it's already pretty big, and I could make enough money to pay the bills just based on on what's there. And the fact that it exploded was a kind of a, a happy accident. In a sense, you know, I had been around the time that I started the company. I went to a, a meeting. There was a group that met in Palo Alto called the Software Entrepreneurs Forum, and this was, I think, uh, late '93. I went to a meeting where there was a talk by Ed Niehaus of uh, Niehaus Ryan Holler, which was a PR firm in the area, and talking about the internet and I had already been thinking about it and uh, and I was there and met some people that were also interested in doing internet businesses. I met uh, Steve Kirsch uh, and he, would, he wouldn't describe what his business was and that ultimately turned out to be InfoSeek of course. He was very secretive. Mm-hmm. I, met, I met Gary Kremen who I had known because I had employed him briefly at Technical Tools uh, some years ago, and Gary, who ultimately did Match.com, uh, was also interested in, and came to me and suggested that we do a, sort of a domain squatting business, which he ultimately did. I turned him down because I didn't think it would be as good a business as doing Quote.com. Um, so he went ahead anyway and did, did that and did Match.com. And and both of those uh, people have been on the show, uh, if listeners remember. Go on. Yeah. Um, so uh, that kind of got me very encouraged, and it led to me really committing myself to Quote.com. And that was uh, was a, perhaps a happy accident in terms of timing. I mean, I was in the right place at the right time with the right knowledge. So uh, it all worked out, and of course, having put all my money into it, I was very committed and worked my butt off for quite a while to uh, get it running. Well, so the, one of the I'm sorry, go ahead, Brian. I was going to say, describe for me. I'm curious because you are in the right place at the right time. I don't know if this if it would be '95 or '96 when the the explosion of the web does happen. Uh, describe for me what happens to Quote.com, like what what. How does it evolve at that point? Well, so what happened was um, being in that right place pretty early made us kind of high profile. And it made us high profile to, of course, venture capitalists, to people running startups, to people who people whose companies were going public, things like that. It made us visible to kind of the some of the real influencers in the business. Um, for example, one of our very early customers was Mark Andreessen, and he would get an update on, on his portfolio every day by email. And I remember getting an email from him probably in 94 or so saying I had to fix my program because uh, every, you know, the emails that he was getting, which was, um, it would show the value of his portfolio 
every day, I was out of significant digits. The, the number of digits in his portfolio was too big for the uh, space that I had allocated in an email. So <laughs> I was able to fix that quickly, and we got Mark straightened around. And uh, uh, so there were, but there were a lot of high-profile customers. Um, what happened was we just kept growing because of that, uh, and people um, spotted us and got kind of interested in what we were doing. The other advantage of doing stock quotes and news and things like that is it generates a tremendous amount of page views. So, you know, much almost like a, a search engine, people would use it frequently and they'd hit it over and over again. You know, people would look at the value of their portfolio multiple times during the day. So that large number of page views really made it attractive. There was a company in, in, uh, this was late 95. It was a company in Boston called Individual Link. It was run by Yossi Amram and they would provide news in kind of the same way that we were doing, but they had historically done it by fax to customers who paid quite a lot of money for the service. And Yossi wanted to get into the internet business. He looked at what we were doing and made, it, made an offer to buy us. And, uh, and I was kind of happy with our growth at that point, and I accepted. And uh, this, so he did his due diligence and went along for a couple of months and got to the point where it was time to um, you know, formally sign the deal, and he, offered, and he pre presented it to his board of directors and his management, and they said no. And he uh, had to call me and uh, and back out, and I have to tell you that was one of the best days of my life because I was I was thrilled um, because at that point I kept I we kept growing and I didn't want to sell it anymore, but I knew I told him that I would, and I felt that I was going to have to sell it uh, because I had told him that I would, and he when he called me and told me that he was backing out, I was just very happy. So we went forward. The guy from Individual um, who had really spearheaded this was a young business development guy named Bill Bales. And Bill came over to work for us. He came out to the West Coast. And Bill really started our, what we ultimately called our kind of private label business. Because we were getting requests for, for stock quotes and news and that kind of thing from a lot of other sites. So, for example, one of our first big customers was Netscape and everybody, all the search engines um, and other companies wanted to get into the portal business and portal was a big part of uh, a big buzzword at that time. And if you wanted to be a portal, you had to have a lot of different features. One of which one critical feature was certainly stock quotes. So we started getting requests from a bunch of companies such as Netscape, also the online brokers like E-Trade and what we would do is put together a page in a, in a subdomain. So it would be something like quotes.netscape.com, and it would be done with their look and feel. And the customers really wouldn't know that it was quote.com doing it, um, aside from some uh, notes on the, perhaps the bottom of the page, sort of like copyright notices or powered by notices. Um, but we would end up doing a lot more page views. Uh, we could ultimately make some money on advertising you, on you, that. You would, and do, we would, you would do a rev share with the advertising? 
Um, yes, exactly. Um, so that uh, business really turned out uh, to grow pretty quickly. And we ended up doing, uh, doing private label deals with most of the search engines. We did InfoSeq, we did Excite, um, we, and, and most of the online brokers like Schwab and E-Trade and Ameritrade and hundreds of other companies. So they would either, you know, some of them didn't want any advertising on their site, in which case uh, they would pay us on a monthly basis. So we, it was an enterprise sales model for us. And some of them wanted advertising uh, because they didn't want to pay for it. And so we would sell the ads and serve up the pages. And um, that was, uh, so that was a part of the business that grew pretty well for us. So at that point, we really had a business model that had three legs. It had subscriptions. It had a, there was an enterprise sales model in terms of selling to businesses that wanted to provide quotes to their customers under their brand. And the third business was advertising sales. I'm curious. So, which, which of the three, which of the three legs was the um, the most successful, or, or grew to be the most successful? For a long time, and and a long time in this case being several years, they were pretty even, and so it, that made it kind of hard for us to focus on things. It led to some some problems in a sense, because when you have three different businesses that are all generating decent revenue, um, it, it's, it's hard sometimes to focus on one. I mean, you can't focus on one. It's hard to make the choice to focus on one, and you get a little bit distracted, and it's hard to keep up uh, with all of them. So that led to some problems for us, ultimately. Um, but it was it certainly looked attractive from a business strategy standpoint. I thought it was attractive, and ultimately our venture capital investors thought it was attractive, and that's what we went ahead and did. So in early 96, we started getting calls from venture capitalists. I started getting calls, but there were two problems. One, I didn't really know about uh, venture capital because I'd never done any of it before, and Two, I never thought that they would actually finance me because of, well, my prison record, for one. I mean, that was a big deal. And two, we were, at that point, profitable. And I thought, well, gee, I don't really need any venture capital. I can just keep growing. So I, they would call, and I would say, no, thanks, not interested. And I finally got a call from uh, Mike Moritz at Sequoia Capital. And Mike convinced me to meet with him and, um, and laid out a way that after I told him what my situation was, he figured out a way to deal with my issues for me to sell him some stock and I could pay off the IRS and, and so on. And we could make it possible for them to get us a lot more capital. Uh, and so Sequoia Capital via Mike Morris ended up uh, investing in us in, I think, May of '96. Uh, I told you that I didn't know anything about venture capital and didn't know anybody really in that. So when Mike Moritz called me uh, and we'd had a meeting, uh, it was time to meet with the partners, of course, and show them, you know, your plan and everything. Well, they, the partners came down to our offices, our, but I didn't really have any offices. I had, uh, I think, 
two offices, two rooms. There was a vacant room across the hall, and I didn't have a conference room either, of course. So what I did was I went across the hall. I found some folding, spare folding chairs and set up a cardboard box that had been used to package a PC in, and that was my conference table. So we met around the, uh, the, the cardboard box conference table with Mike and all of his, not all, but uh, several of his partners. And uh, I think I heard later that they found that to be not only charming, but they, Sequoia, as it turns out, really appreciates um, entrepreneurs who are frugal. And I didn't know this going in. I was just frugal because I didn't have any money. But, uh, uh, but it probably contributed pretty significantly to them financing the business. But we ultimately had two more rounds, in which case, uh, you know, in the second round, it was Sequoia and it was also Highland Capital with Dan Nova out of Boston. And in the third round, which was probably a couple of years later, we ended up with uh, Sequoia, Highland, and also Shawmut Capital out of Boston. So, um, you know, having VCs gave us a lot more credibility. It gave us a lot more capital to work with. Um, we were never profitable again, of course, uh, because once you have all the money, you start spending it. But turns out at that point in time, profitability wasn't the important thing. It was growth. And we were growing like mad. So that worked. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I'm I'm curious also, um, and I might be getting ahead a little bit, but um, another wave that you're perfectly positioned for is the explosion in online trading. You know, um, I think like a number that I have is like by 1996, 800,000 um, online accounts are created in America to to trade online, and so um, is is that is that the case? You're also perfectly positioned uh, when that starts to take off as well. Perfectly positioned, yes. Um, and we talked about this a lot as far as whether it made strategic sense for us. And the problem, the issue always came down to, one, we don't want to compete with our customers. And we had some great customers, Schwab and E-Trade and Ameritrade and other online brokers. And if we went after online trading, well, we would drive them away. Um, two, it wasn't in our area of expertise. I didn't know about trading uh, from a brokerage perspective, and it's highly regulated. 
and you have to be really reliable, for example. And I got to tell you, at that point in time, we had reliability issues and we could, you know, we had trouble keeping our site up sometimes when there were rushes of customers. And to be, to not be able to manage that when they're just looking for quotes and news, imagine what would happen to you if your customers couldn't trade when they wanted to get out of something. So we had those issues to deal with. And so the lack of knowledge um, and the idea of competing with our customers kind of always drove our decision to not try to get into that business. So what, how does uh, the business evolve into, you know, take me into the, the height of the dot-com era? I'm talking 97, 98, that sort of time period. For us, it's um, mostly a matter of, of continuing to grow. There were, uh, I mean, we grew a lot. Our page views were, were skyrocketing, you know, around that time, around 98 or so, we were probably getting close to 100 million page views a month. Um, it was doing really well. We had some other, we had added some other services that generated even more page views. For example, I had, uh, I had bought a company called, uh, well, this was, if you remember, I mentioned earlier in the talk, uh, Eric Hunsader, whose right. company I had bought was with technical tools. Well, he had since started another company, uh, which was doing, uh, streaming quotes over the, over the internet. He had a service that, or he had a product called Live Charts, which was a Java applet in which people could just leave up and running on their PC and it would update continuously with every quote. And of course, now that's old hat. You can see that. But at the time, it, nobody was doing it. It was thought to be impossible, basically. Um, and we had uh, an application running on Windows called QCharts that would also update. Uh, dynamically with every quote. So Eric had developed these products, um, hadn't really launched them yet, uh, but I had still been in touch with him, and I bought his company, or Quote.com quote bought his company. And we integrated that into our service. Um, now it turns out that having a, a streaming app uh, really generates a, a lot of page views. Uh, because we could change the ad button, for example, every um, every minute or every 30 seconds or so, and you might leave that up and running for hours. So that was, uh, and it was very popular because, um, one, because uh, nobody else had anything like that, and uh, and two, it could be done at a low price. Uh, our costs for bandwidth uh, were not very high because it was very highly compressed. Um, and we could charge subscriptions for it too, for real-time data. So it was a way of boosting subscriptions up to the $100 a month range for those people who were willing to pay. Um, so that really boosted our subscription business. Our, our advertising business kept growing because um, uh, because of the page views and because we had had to build our own um, in-house advertising sales uh, team, right? And the and the enterprise sales, uh, the the private label stuff was growing, kept growing until I would say sort of uh, maybe around end of ninety eight, ninety nine, when it kind of flattened out, as pretty much everybody had quotes at that point. Um, 
but the subscription business continued to grow. So in a Ultimately, way, in a way, you you sort of become a portal of your own. It's just it's all finance stuff. Absolutely, that was our our goal was to be finance stuff, uh, finance portal. So. Um, quotes and news and research. By that time, of course, there was a lot more competition. You know, when we started in 94, it was pretty much us and a company called Security APL that were doing quotes. And gradually over time, uh, we got competitors and companies like Yahoo rolled their own and did a really good job of it. So there was, uh, by 97, 98, there was plenty of competition, but of course there was enough growth and users on the net that we didn't really notice it because we kept growing. So ultimately, um, into 98, 99, um, you're the successful portal. I, I would imagine you're in the top five of, of, of uh, financial sites and things like that. Um, I'm curious to know, lead me down the story of, of how you decide to sell to Lycos. Okay. Um, to start a little bit earlier, okay. uh, Lycos wasn't the first. Uh, Lycos wasn't the first offer for our business. So, of course, the first one I already mentioned was Individual Inc. Um, we had another offer. This was in, I believe, '98. Uh, we had an offer from NBC, uh, CNBC, NBC, uh, basically the same. Uh, they uh, wanted to buy our service, and um, and so I negotiated a, a deal because I was CEO at that time. I had been sort of in and out of the CEO business at Quote.com. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, I was in, and uh, and so I negotiated a, a deal to NBC, and what happened was they – kind of started what was, from my point of view, some kind of classic negotiating tactics. Uh, they just started dragging their feet. And, uh, and the business, I mean, I mean, the deal wasn't happening. And I was afraid that it wasn't going to happen. And, uh, you know, we were starting to run short on money, which I think they knew. And uh, so uh, it got to the point that although we had an agreement in principle – we just decided that it, um, they weren't the partner for us. Um, so we stopped that deal. And uh, not too long, a little while after that, uh, we, were, we were approached by Intuit uh, to buy us. And that was uh, an attractive offer. Um, so I negotiated a, a sale to Intuit. And what happened with that was there were some problems with uh, some of our, our critical staff that were not helping us out with the deal very much. And Intuit, although they – well, Intuit got to the point – in fact, they got to the morning of signing the deal and finally decided the management team, um, in this case, again, uh, backed out and just convinced the CEO that it wasn't the deal for them. And so I got a call in the morning and said, the deal is off. So our sale to Intuit um, uh, fell through. And at that point, uh, I went out of the CEO business again because, you know, I'd, 
the sale to NBC didn't happen. The sale to Intuit didn't happen. It was time for some new blood. So we convinced uh, one of our board members, who was Robert Honeycutt, to come in as CEO. He did. And uh, what happened was uh, he ran the company for some time, probably, I don't know, um, maybe a year, maybe six months to a year. And Robert did a good job with that. And ultimately what happened was uh, Lycos, who was one of our um, one of our OEM, our private label customers, and had been generating a lot of page views for us, um, was kind of snapping up companies. Uh, they had previously bought a company called Raging Bull. Uh, this was Bob Davis at Lycos. And so right. they were certainly... Has also said, been on it, the show as well. Yeah. So they were interested in the... Um, financial business and were attracted to our page views, of course. And um, one of their board members was one of our investors, who was Dan Nova at Highland Capital. So the, the contact was made very easily. And Lycos uh, made an offer, and Robert was able to put that deal together. And ultimately, in December of 99, that deal closed, and Quote.com was sold to Lycos, which eventually sold itself eventually being only a matter of, uh, of a couple of months or so, mm-hmm. a few months, sold itself to Terra, uh, which was an ISP in Europe. So they became Terra Lycos. Um, and actually, you know, that completed quite a portfolio for them at that time because they also have Angel Fire and Tripod and, and, and Hotbot and things like that at that point. Um, I, we'll, we'll finish in a minute um, by talking about, you know, what you've done sub- subsequently and what you're doing today, but... I just wanted to um, take a second to to look back at this story of, of Quote.com. Um, and first of all, by making just a comment, in, in a sense, um, as, a, as someone who, who loves gambling, and you, you said at the beginning that um, you thought that uh, Wall Street was the biggest casino in the world. But in a way, um, you were successful in the way that the, the cliche goes that if there's a gold rush, the way you make money is, is selling the pickaxes and things like that. Um, you never had your dream of being the gambler, but you, you facilitated all the other gamblers in a way. That's, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and it kept happening. I kept thinking, I'm going to be a trader now. I'm going to be a trader. And then some business opportunity comes up that I can't turn down, like technical tools and like quote.com. And, and so I kept getting distracted doing these other businesses, which turned out pretty well for me. I mean, ultimately, finally, I was able, uh, some years after selling Quote.com, to be a trader, and that's what I still do. Um, I, I do trading, and I'm, I'm happy doing that, but, uh, as well as some other businesses. But um, uh, you're right. That's exactly the way uh, that I felt. I always wanted to trade, but my talents especially were um, – were kind of in the data business and uh, on the technical side and the, and the programming and a little bit of management. So that's what we ended up doing, and it worked out. And having having missed out on, on the great casino of, of the dot-com era, uh, are you glad that you missed out on that? I mean, maybe you would have been very good at it. You've been maybe one of those day traders that was able to get out at the right time or something. What it, Looking back on the dot-com era in terms of, being an active participant, do you regret missing out on that or not? Well, you know, I probably would have made a lot of money trading during that area, but then I probably would have lost it in the subsequent uh, dot-com bust, which is in fact what happened to me to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Um, 
of course, I'd seen the markets going up for years, and they just kept going up. And uh, and I thought that it was, you know, I thought I was smart and that I could uh, invest in these tech businesses and they would keep growing. I bought the Kool-Aid. I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid just like a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So when it when I when we sold to Lycos, uh, the question was, do I sell my stock or do I hold on to it? And this was December '99. I held on to it, and for the next couple of weeks, uh, next few weeks, watched it almost double. And I thought, wow, this is really great. And so I kept holding on to it, and kept holding on to it, and uh, of course, it crashed from there. And uh, I managed to sell some, sort of on the way down, but ended up. Uh, quite a bit less than where I was when we sold it. Um, I had also, with with my um, with my profits from the sale of Quote.com, had thought that I must be uh, I must be a smart private equity investor. So I did a lot of um, of uh, angel investing, and uh, at precisely the wrong time in the year two thousand. Uh, so. Uh, all of those, I mean, I must have done a dozen angel investments that all went to zero. So I quickly learned that I wasn't, wasn't a smart angel investor. I decided that I had a great model for doing some online trading that was very unique, very cutting edge, and started a business called uh, 10X. And this was uh, to be an online trading business. And after six months, I realized that uh, it was going to take a lot more money to get built because um, because you pretty much have to build an online trading service before you can get your first customer. And at that time in late 2000, early 2001, there was no more finance available, even to somebody like me with a good track record. So I shut that business down, and that was another big loss. So what I found was that... Uh, Although I thought I knew about trading, um, I really didn't. Um, and I had a lot more to learn about the ways to trade and, and make it profitable in the long term. I'd like to I'd like to close with sort of a speculative question, but it strikes me that you're someone uniquely qualified possibly to to comment on this. Uh, everyone's favorite parlor game in, in Silicon Valley, of course, is are we in another bubble? And as someone who not only was involved in the dot-com era, but is still actively, you know, a, a trader and in finance and things like that. If, if someone plays that parlor game with you comparing today with, you know, the late nineties, what, what do you say to them? Well, I would say that it's not similar, but it's not that far off. And I would also always offer the caveat that I still don't know anything about, making longer-term predictions. When I trade now, I trade very short-term. I'm, I'm a day trader, basically. And I don't know anything about what's going to happen outside of a few hours from now. And so I have opinions, but my opinions are not necessarily better formed, better informed than lots of other people who are closer to the tech business than I am these days. Um, I think... Things long term will grow quite a lot, and I think it's we're due for a, a crash sometime in the near term. But I have no idea when it is. I won't try to time it, and um, I, because that's just not what I'm able to do. I've learned a 
little bit, a little bit of self-knowledge so I can try to avoid some of those big, big mistakes that I made in the past. Uh, well, Chris Cooper, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast and um, remembering what was, what has been really a fascinating career. Thank you very much, Brian. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.